Hello, my name is Sam Smith, and this is Map of the Maze podcast from Pep Talks, in which I'll be exploring a business theme related specifically to private equity backed and entrepreneurial companies. Here we are for our next episode of Map of the Maze. Delighted to have Ian Philby join us as our guest for this episode and about to be our founder member special guest at uh, a dinner in about 45 minutes. Should I just do it by way of introduction? Ian was CEO of DFS, appointed post-Advents buyout, buying it from Lord Kirkham, which is a story in that in itself. Big cultural change, I'm sure. And took it through a very successful period of growth with, with Advent and private equity. So po- post-float float was 20, 2014, yeah? 2015. 2015, sorry. Yeah. yeah. And then you served another three, three and, and a half, half years yeah. in a listed business. So really unique experience of uh, private equity. And actually prior to DFS, you were a uh, trading director at Boots. You had some yeah. 20, 25, 30 years at Boots. Yeah, Man and boy. 30 years, yeah. Yeah. Um, and clearly that was a listed business that was taken private by... KKR, KKR yeah. and the infamous Stefano, who must have been fascinating to witness and work with. Really enjoyed working with him, yeah, very interesting man. So uh, t- tell us about, because um, some of our members and listeners will be looking at an IPO as a realistic exit route, and there aren't that many private equity bat CEOs who've really been through it. So why why an IPO in your case? Why did, why did Advent go that route so I think in truth from 2010 to back end of 13 we were thinking either of a trade deal or a, or a secondary that would have been probably how we were shaping the business mm-hmm. but then um, the stock market just, you know, took, a, took a turn for suddenly the conditions were ripe for IPOs at the back of 13 and from an advent point of view they just did the valuations on how stock market was valuing the companies as a multiplier of EBITDA versus how private equity the numbers were bigger on IPO so they got enthusiastic uh, an interesting thing I think we've chatted about before was they then went through a thought process that says do we dual track it do we sort of try and sell it to both the investors as an IPO but in as like a safety net go through a parallel track but slightly different process trying to sell it to um, private equities Mm. Um, I'm glad that we persuaded them to back one horse because you know that both processes are a bit different and already stretched particularly finance department having to sort of produce all the papers and the and and the evidence to appeal to two slightly type of different investors Mm. would have been even more onerous Mm. What, what, what what are the benefits to a management team to, to going from PE to public ownership? Uh, I, I, you know, I think there's a, a, a big topic of, of debate. I think uh, one of the elements is that when you become a public company, obviously your owners are much, much more fragmented. So you know, you're answerable to shareholders, but no single shareholder sits around your board table, whereas when you're private equity, mm-hmm. They're, they're usually a, an incredibly strong voice around your table. So there's a much greater sense of you as a senior team running your own business and, and therefore and answerable to analysts and investors who will give you feedback if they think the shape's right, but they're not there questioning um, the strategic direction. So greater sense of ownership, 
greater sense of whatever your sweet equity has turned into in reward, of which not, not all of which you're ever able to take out uh, at yeah. an exit event. Uh, personally, I think the value of that is, is probably safer in a public environment than it is in a uh, private equity environment, especially if you've had to sort of roll over some of your upside into maybe even you know a risky uh, sweet equity or or loan notes but you know in the end private equity guys take bigger risks so there's a bigger chance that a big chunk of what all those years you put into getting to an exit some of that value may dissipate mm. and you can't really control it mm-hmm. the process to float leading up to float just talk us through that is that more onerous than a a secondary buyout another private equity deal uh, I sense yes um, uh, but not having done the parallel track mm. I can't completely judge it but I'm pretty certain it is because part of the process is they've got all kinds of funny terms probably can't remember them all but they talk about pilot fishing and you know so you you sort of do this incredible round of potential investors maybe in the UK maybe in Europe maybe in the US um, and we, we started that a whole year before before actual float, you know, and so you're presenting maybe to 50, 60, 70 people the same presentation. At the same one. time or individually? Uh, no, individually, individually. Wow. So, you know, that's it's time hungry, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. physically... That's, that's a roadshow on steroids, yeah. isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and of course, you know, if you get, part of it is just try and get a sense of whether there's an appetite for your story, whether it's fine-tuning the story. And, you know, if, if all things then carry on to everybody deciding that this is a goer, you know, it, when you then actually come to, uh, to float, you might do two more rounds of that, um, another sort of refresh when you're ready to go just to check your story really is right. And then the final sell where you are literally going around trying to get people to decide to buy 20, 30, 40, 50 million pounds of your shares in our, in our case, which, yeah. is, which is a real heavy sell. And that's physically... Uh, you have to have really good physical stamina and uh, yeah. to do that. Yeah, I remember so, it's my my favourite story on that was one day I actually landed in Heathrow twice on the same day. So I literally flew out one night, did a whole lot of presentations in New York, flew through the night for five hours, showered in Heathrow, flew to Frankfurt, did a whole day of uh, of sell, and then flew back into to London for the second time that night before quick bit of kip and another day selling in London the next day so uh, yeah good experience need some energy for that you do (laughs) Um, but really what you're doing is warming up the potential investors aren't you so you're trying you're trying to gauge market interest and and does that then determine price very much so. The, so the float share price. So when it comes to that last sell, you know you're gen- you're trying to see how much you demand. So if you know if your if your sort of target price might be three or four hundred million, for instance, you know what you're really looking to do is create probably three or four times that demand as yeah. much as that, and then because that then enables you to decide because it's your decision how you allocate. So some people who you think are going to be really stable long-term investors, you might give them half what they want or three quarters. Mm. Those that will just create a bit of liquidity, but you know just in there for a quick for a quick bit of bunts, you might only give them 10, 15. Or if you think some are going to be disruptive, you might want to not give them any of the share. So that's a, that's the fun, fun, fun final bit of the whole process where you get to choose mm. what your final investor base is looking like. What's the interrogation like from the potential investors? Is, is it similar to that that you would experience from a private equity investor? Do they go through the same level of detail? 
No, they don't. They don't, and therefore that's why it will be a different. You know, these these people uh, are trying to understand the whole model, but they're often, particularly in the UK, more than the states. In the UK, these guys are rarely experts in your field. They're quite generalists. Mm. So, yeah, they're trying to trying to understand the story. They're trying to very often understand the the dynamics of the of the balance sheet and, and, and the story and they're really in truth they're buying into you as a management team yeah so private equity is quite interesting is when private equity is selling they they're not on the roadshow with you so it's just you know in this case it was myself the CEO and the CFO it's it's the two of us going out and doing the sell mm-hmm. because they're suspicious of the you know the private equity guys would say it's all brilliant they want us they want to hear the story from the people who will still be there mm-hmm. Post, post the float. Okay, so so now we're getting close. You've you've uh, understood the market. You have a price expectation. You've driven up demand. You're getting close to that that ultimate day of ringing the bell. Um, yeah. What else are you get? What what else are you having to prepare up to the point of float day? Yeah, I mean, I I think uh, remember you've got an organisation. Absolutely, you've got to be <laughs> on the numbers. So you, you you've you've got to, during this process you've had to prepare for it well in terms of almost leaving the day-to-day operation to a, to yeah. an operational team and trying to keep the people involved in the float as tight as you can so that you've almost got two people running two sets of people you've got all the comms into the people because it's quite a big deal you know uh, uh, to know that they're going to suddenly become a private become what does that mean if you become a public company uh, what does it uh, mean for us and then you've got other little bits of not so much preparation, but you've got a few watch outs. You know, so even the nicest private equity guys, and I think I've been lucky to work with some good ones, but as a management team, you've got to be on the ball because they're looking to optimise their price. And if uh, if suddenly right at the death they've kind of got to tweak what the management gets out of the deal, they're they're pretty sharp at doing that. So uh, you have to have. Good advisors. I would always recommend any team, any management team, should have their own advisors, and uh, because the private equity guys will have their advisors acting on their behalf with the investors, so you need uh, a, a, a team of people looking after management's interests. But that you have to be really on the ball in those last even 24 hours. How can they deter? How can they change the value of what you're going to get? You have a you have a percentage share in the business. Uh, that's 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 the bit that can move very easily at the end. So, if they sense that investors want the management team to be have more skin in it, they might at the end kind of go, "Oh, we've been talking to the banks, and there's a general sense here. I know we told you guys that you're going to take 35, 40 percent out, but we'd rather you take 20 percent." Or I know countrywide, I remember talking to the CEO there the day before. They said, "Well, the." the the rest of the guys can get a little bit out, but you as a CEO, we want you to take nothing out. <laughs> so I held a gun to his head with, with 24 hours to go. So those will be some of the little examples. Yeah. Some of the costs of the whole thing, they're very very good at sharing between themselves and you, the management team, even though they're, they're prized. So you've got to be pretty sharp what you're signing <laughs> on terms of the forms, because uh, suddenly your little, bit of, your little bit of upside gets chipped away out in bank fees and things that are not really appropriate to the management team. So there's a few watch outs there and you need a, you need a bunch of experts helping you on that. So uh, you get through the flow, get the price. Does the job then dramatically change uh, a CEO leading a listed business versus a private equity business? I don't think it does in, 
as you might imagine in the first instance because part of what you've clearly sold is what the shape of the top line and and the uh, and the bottom line will be and the investment necessary for that over the next four years um, so hopefully having had a successful IPO, you sort of know what your targets are. And the first really critical date is, could be three months further down the right line, or if you've been well advised, as as I'm glad I was, you know, I insisted to our investors that we were only going to report every six months. And I would encourage anybody through a process like that, because as you start is how you then have to go on. So we we managed to create a a heartbeat of six monthly reporting, which is much more time efficient. But also just gives you a proper run at those first six month numbers, which have to be good. You know, so they're looking for they're they're, they're looking for evidence that you're not going to miss your first year's targets. So those first six month numbers are going to be strongly scrutinised by both the analysts and and investors. Mm-hmm. So you're going to be straight onto that. Um, I think just as another little, perhaps just touching on the pre and the post, one of the other bits of advice I'd, I'd give is remember that you're the guys that are going to be delivering the next two to three years. So don't let your private equity guys be over optimistic on the first couple of years performance. They'll always be tempted to push it up a bit because it ups the valuation of the product. But remember that if they're lucky, they'll be gone in 18 months um, and it's you that's going to be facing uh, the investors are I know myself and the CFO we we were pretty disciplined and even though it slightly irked our private equity guys we we we're pretty uh, insistent we sort of had numbers that we were 95% confident we were going to deliver in the first three mm-hmm. three years and uh, so therefore we were in a good place to deliver the numbers in the first one as we did for the for the first uh, as it happened two and a half years post global a little bit of politics came into play called Brexit <laughs> yeah, a little bit of a change in market dynamics. Yeah, yeah. Just a bit. What was that? Must that must be really tough then, being a, a public company when you have to deal with the headwinds of market change. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think um, really important to spend time. Um, it's, it's the analysts who really get underneath your, your business a bit better and they tend to be more specialists and they obviously act as, as the sort of the mouthpiece or, or the, the information piece for, for investors. So if you've, if, you've been, if you've really helped them understand your model and you can show them the moving parts, uh, they're often good interpreters. If a headwind's there and, and it's clearly there's date market data to show it, they're more likely to be tolerant and interpret whether you know there, there's a good reason for for the the business to be slightly below what was expected so I'm going to bring that to life you know one of the underpinning principles was that the long-term growth in our market so far has been three percent per annum and so therefore reasonably that was in the future modeling uh, it's a number that's measured externally when post brexit the market started moving into minus two minus three it's your analysts that, that actually in effect sort of slightly downgrade performance and then everybody's more relaxed about it because it's it's um, it was built into the model in the first place where your numbers were coming from just going back to the um the point of the, the private equity exit to to ipo how much of the equity are they are they selling? Because they actually they don't sell it all, do they? They, no. have, they have to go in and no, I don't, I don't know whether there's a, a you know a couple in our sector that I happen to know, including ours. They sort of sold fifty percent. 
I don't think the public market is comfortable if they sell more than 50 because as you might imagine they'll kind of go do they know something that that we don't know is this being overdressed up so um, and indeed I think the sign of a good sale that's been well handled is that the the private equity guys will probably try and get their all their money out in the next 18 months two years and if they have as they did in our case then I think that's the city saying yeah you know there was nothing there was nothing uh, dodgy about the numbers and the projections so we're relaxed about you putting more equity into the marketplace it happens to be a real live example at the same time as we floated the number two in our market called SCS also floated Mm -hmm. and four and a four and a half years on the private equity have still got their 50 percent so they obviously haven't been able to convince the marketplace that the proposition was as strong as as they were obviously saying at float so um, Mm. that that almost gives you the two ends of the spectrum there Mm. what what about um, management position in terms of selling down your equity so can you do that in certain periods can't you you can lots of closed periods you almost know too much all the time so you know it's it's after your six months full year results that's a little bit of a window when you can because in a way you've brought everybody up to speed with not only your historical results but sort of a little bit of a commentary on current conditions and and trading so those are your windows I think um, for the top two players CEO CFO although technically you can sell uh, it's kind of hard yeah, um, it's, it's not, not impossible, but it, it's hard. You know, I think in the end, if you're really shooting the lights out on the plan, people will be a bit more relaxed. If you're sort of there or thereabouts or slightly behind the curve, then you can find yourself a little bit uh, with your equity tied up. Not too bad for the rest of the executive team in your organisation. It's you know, sort of a bit more, a bit more comfortable for them to sell. But for you top two guys, you know, you can find yourself with your equity a bit tied up. Um, longer term yeah it sends well it's potentially a negative message <laughs> it isn't sends it? message yeah well <laughs> what does this guy know that yeah. we don't he's yeah. dumped 50% yeah. of his stock yeah 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 yeah, yeah. okay Any, anything else in terms of watch outs if we're if I was about to do this is there a, any other sort of top tips so just be careful yeah. around what, I think um, uh, one other that particularly springs to mind uh Different banks during the sell process uh, claim that they get to different investor bases, uh, but each of them that are in on the sell process brings you extra work, particularly for your finance team. We were eventually talked into having four banks. Um, I wish we had stuck at three, because the fourth bank didn't really do what they said they were going to do and, and added it so then they all ended up fighting over the same chunk of invest uh, of uh, potential investors and they all did add a little bit of a different dimension but I think the fourth one didn't and it just brought a lot of extra hard work and again I think private equity just trying to squeeze that last little bit out will, will sometimes be a little bit tempted to to bring more players in but of course that's going to bring more distraction for again particularly your finance department in the uh, in the preparation phase mm-hmm. okay great let's move on yeah so eight years at uh, at DFS which is which is a considerable amount of time and three and a half as a listed CEO yeah what would be really interesting is just to, to sort of hear 
what, what you learned most about the CEO job over an eight-year period and through two different ownership structures? Yeah, gosh, I mean, that's, so, a pretty, that's a pretty wide territory, yeah, isn't it? That's why um, the book. But yeah, <laughs> I, I think a few principles I know we've chatted about. Um, uh, one, uh, very early doors, be clear what your long-term goals are and, and a degree of granularity as to how you would express that as sort of vision on maybe three or four dimensions. Mm. And that should be co-created with your top team, should be exhaustively and repeatedly uh, shared with the whole organization, and I mean the whole organization, and then some of the KPIs that are, that are linked to that should go all the way into uh, re remuneration of, uh, of everybody in the company. So I, I cite one particular example, one of the things I introduced was a really tough net promoter score which we measured with our customers at four stages of the customer journey with us because the nature of our of our businesses it's quite a long journey from pre to making the product delivering it and living with it afterwards and uh, everybody in the company including my good self had uh, skin in a bonus around the around tough NPS targets that grew you know and right down to a level of detail that every single salesperson in my organization which was about 800 people all had their own personal NPS scores and feedback from customers that's sort of a good example of how ingrained we made it mm. into it was part of the journey it was part of how we were going to get there and, and how we linked it in um, to, to everybody's uh, measurement. So I think really clear vision st and stick to it. There's always a temptation to tweak and change it. I've pretty well over my whole eight years never really changed the strategy mm. um, and measured ourselves uh, uh, against it. Second one, um, get <laughs> good people around you, yeah. top people. It's, everybody says it. Um, Many CEOs, in truth, may well be threatened by having really good people. I know we've chatted about this before, Sam and I. I got two potential successes in almost from the beginning. So the vulnerability that gives you is you might do too good a job and people might the board might decide that they might be better than you. Mm. So there's a degree of vulnerability, but uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't overplay that. I think, in truth, you get really, really top people around you, enables you to do the CEO role, I think, as you probably should, which enables you to be much more external, outward-facing mm. in your mindset rather than trying to control all the uh, levers within the business. If you've got good people, as long as you're clear where you're going, mm. it's, you know, they, they do thrive if, uh, if you're not on their case all the time. And, uh, and that was something I strongly believe in. It made my job more enjoyable. I think it made the company more successful because you get more out of those people. But it, it might feel quite quite threatening. The other, the other thing that you talk about in regards to the DFS journey, certainly sort of in those those earlier days, you were really pushing the sort of we want to be. This is a great business, but how do we get this business from where it is to a world class business? Yeah, yeah. You sort of set a target that was sort of slightly out of reach all the time, which which yeah. was obviously generated a momentum within the business to reach that target. Yeah, I think being being competitive, people were competitive within the organisation, so I liked the idea that we were going from being a great British company to a world class 
uh, British company. So that resonated, and, and I sort of felt that because people started playing back that language back to me. And they sort of, you could see them sort of mm. you know, pick their shoulders up a bit and go, yeah, I think we're, I think we're doing this world-class now. Brilliant. The truth is, world-class, you never get there. No. You know, it's it's a sort of it's a sort of a status that if you're ever sort of there, you're probably not going to be there for long, and you've got to keep stretching forward. So it's a sort of healthy mindset, and then a set a couple of big, you know, structural. And we when we looked at the plan, we said, look, this is a business that had an underlying EBITDA of about sixty million, and the plan over about sort of six seven years should have taken us to about one hundred and twenty. Brexit sort of just took us a bit off track, but it's it's going to be a little bit late. But the business is going to get there. Mm. Um, I wanted to double the size of the business. You know, we've gone from a six hundred and fifty million pound business to a one point three billion. I talked about taking our market share from twenty three to forty. The main board were always getting on my back, saying, well, "Where's your plan to forty? And I, I never had one. Um, but as I leave the company now, we are fast. We've got to thirty five, and we're we've fast approaching a plan that says I reckon in about two years now on current projections we will get to that 40 so it, it's interesting how you know you don't have to have all the bits there but you can have the logic or the or the the belief that you can get there and funnily enough you start making some different decisions in our case we were much more aggressive with M&A than I think we had ever, ever would have thought about and that's ended up being a hugely successful part of our journey we started acquiring bits and pieces of people in uh, 13 and here we are in, in 17 we made managed to purchase the number three player in the market Sophology yeah which I've been sharing for the last year which has gone very well which has gone very very well and um, you know so uh, you know I think I think the ambition sort of steered you down that route whereas you might have been a little bit more reticent so to do yeah you mentioned uh, you touched on it a second ago outwardly thinking mm. Why is, why is that important, do you think, in the CEO role? Well, I think, you know, we're up in Doncaster, which is, uh, so I'm going to offend people in Doncaster, but, but is not generally seen as the centre of the universe. And, uh, and I think, you know, inevitably in retail, you're firefighting with weeks, numbers, and before you know it, you end up looking very inwardly. You know, you're trying to sort out your own problems, you're trying, you know, and, and everybody gets sucked in there. And... Uh, I think as a CEO, you particularly, and, and hopefully a number of your other directors, but I'd always encourage my other directors to do the same. But, but the, 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 the sea that we're all swimming in is, is changing remarkably. And, and interestingly, as an aside, uh, this, to my view, I've been in retail 40 years, this is by far the most tumultuous time in, in retail um, that I've ever seen. Um, and if you're too busy inward looking, you're not really watching how the landscape is is changing around you on lots of dimensions you know, whether it's AI move, uh, moving uh, how customers are acquired and having to move faster than you might imagine from broadcast to digital mm. uh, marketing whether it's how your customers are interacting the growth of the web even in a business like sofas that you kind of go well what's that you know, why people buy sofas and web unfortunately they do like everything else so uh, and, and you know how you communicate. I mean, I brought something called Workplace into the organisation because I'm an early, it was an early adopter with Facebook, where in effect we've just created a big community of four thousand people within DFS just talking to each other, like on a, on a big open Facebook. It's it's remarkable. And that only came because I was you know, having a coffee with 
the uh, the European director of Facebook, who I happen to know, Nicola, and she sort of put me on that. So you know, we were an early adopter of that and have benefited from it. And mm. it's you know, what you wouldn't pick that up if you were kind of busy yeah. trying to control all the levers in uh, in Doncaster. You were quite disciplined though with that, with your approach to being outwardly focused. You took up some non-exec roles. Yep. Yeah, uh, as, as you know, I've been involved with the BRC and I uh, chair the, the uh, policy board. That gets me interaction with government. Um, I work with a couple of, uh, a couple of uh, charities in London. I also strangely took on the role as chairman of Shoe Zone, a small little retailer based in Leicester, even though I was a CEO. So that gave me another, another input to a different customer base, a different sort of retail model. Um, and you know, I stayed on the advisory board of Nectar um, around uh, customer loyalty themes. So, all these sort of different diverse backgrounds. You just means you meet a lot of interesting people from government to entrepreneurs to tech yeah. to whatever. And you, you never really know where you've picked up the little nuggets, but you sort of put them together, and I think yeah. they help. It gives you the space to do that, to to, to find those nuggets, to meet the yeah. interesting people, to. Yeah have a different type yeah. of conversation. Yeah. We've got about five minutes left, so let's um, talk about a challenge which many of our members uh, are grappling with, which is succession planning. Mm. So I've done, a, done a good job, everything's worked out well, but how do I get out of this? You know, how do, yeah. I, how do I pass the baton? And you did that, you've done that really successfully. Yeah. Well, I, I think I probably touched on it sort of slightly earlier in, in our conversation. I think you have to, the self-confidence to to recognise you're going to have people who actually, if you're really honest with yourself, you might even think are better than than yourself working for you within your organisation. So, um, and then you've got to bring them in with plenty of time. So you have to sort of have a vague idea when succession might be. I don't. I think you know, that can be plus or minus. You know, even two years maybe. Yeah, and uh, I, I did think I would be out a little earlier, but uh, so, you know the market just didn't feel right until about a year ago. Um, so it could have been a year earlier, or it could have been a year later. But I brought um, I brought three people in actually in the end to be my successor. Um, and when you uh, hired them, did you hire them? Did, were you yep. open with them? So there is an yep. opportunity here to yeah, yeah. And but I also told them that they were in a. Were two things that they were in a competitive situation so they sort of knew who their competitors were but also that it was a board call not Michael and so you know in the end it wasn't just about you know pushing sharp elbows with the other two people you know in truth if you, if they did that which could have been very damaging um, that would have almost guaranteed they didn't get yeah. you know and actually was one of the requirements of the board that there was no evidence of sharp elbows between them so it actually created quite a collaborative um, style between those three guys because they kind of realised that none of them were going to be in the fray if we weren't successful, and if we weren't, you know, if they weren't working together as a, as a good team, then we weren't going to be successful. So they had to establish that up front, and then they recognised that um, that uh, the board might choose external and would at least do some sort of benchmarking versus mm -hmm. external, which they did in the final process. But in truth. My view is an internal candidate is probably in many situations, as long as you develop them well, the best solution. You know, the board at least know what they're getting because they'll have seen these people in play, they'll have seen them uh, uh, presenting at, at the board, etc. So they're, they're sort of advantaged. 
as long as they develop themselves. So the sort of things I would do, I would do formal, formal training. I'd send them to, you know, a business school for a couple of weeks and wherever I thought the weaknesses were, that I'd give them all personal coaches. Um, and then I'd typically grow their roles. So during the journey, I'd, I'd make their role bigger and do some consolidation within the senior team, particularly looking to advantage uh, what ended up being two. I mean, it started as two, uh, grew those roles, brought a third one in, one then left because um, they didn't fancy their chances. And so I was then left with, with two to to battle it out. And that's quite a tough process because then when one of them got the role, we had to lose the other one because the town wasn't really big enough. You did lose them? Straight away, yeah. Right. And then I've subsequently helped that person get a very good job in there. So, you know, it's not personal. And yeah. I, in that process, I also made sure that I didn't just sort of uh, lose the person who was the loser. I kept on personally backing them. And it took me about a year to help them to get a job, but they've now got a fabulous job. Brilliant. And, uh, there's yeah, no, there's no, there's no loser here, is there? It's a, no. It's a sort of contract of understanding that if you're in this position, if I'm going to put you in this position, you've got an amazing opportunity to develop and learn. Yeah. And if you're successful in getting the top job, then great. But if you're not, you're, you're better equipped to go and get another top job. And that was, you know, with all that um, sort of the, the personal training and some of the external courses and the nature of the size of the job that I developed into, you know, if, if in the end the board had decided to go external, uh, you're absolutely right. I think both those individuals, well, one has already got a better, uh, a better job and I think they would have both got a better job even if it wasn't in uh, DFS. Yeah. How have DFS used you, though, in that transition? So you've handed over to a successor. Yeah. And you, you're still involved in the business. You are not yeah. the chair, are you? No, not not at all. And you wouldn't support that idea. I w- no, I wouldn't actually. <laughs> I most definitely wouldn't. And I think um, uh, it's a serious point actually because yeah. I think the shadow of a previous person. I mean, I joked right at the beginning of this conversation that I was the David Moyes of this. You know, well, luckily I've done a bit better than David Moyes did at uh, Man United. And one of the you know one of the things I always felt sorry for David Moyes was you know every time the cameras were at Old Trafford, they were panning up to Fergie. You know, showing every single shaking his head, showing you whatever. You know, and then everybody in the, at the place still called Fergie boss around the place. They went to moan to him if they didn't like what David Moyes was doing. So, um, you know, one of the things I've I've been around for for a further year, but luckily we had um, we had acquired Sophology, and I had to put a new CEO in there a year ago, co- coinciding with me taking over the role. So, it's, and I've just been completely offsite. My all my role has been about appointing a CEO for. For the for, for sophology, helping them accelerate the pace at which they get the synergies out of being part of the DFS family and uh, being in the DFS head office as little as possible, so that everybody was really clear that my successor Tim was the boss and yeah. uh, get out of the way. Yeah, and then Tim and I meet once a month at his behest. We go and have a beer. And uh, he sort of bounces some stuff off with me, and uh, and if he doesn't want to have a beer with me, I'm very relaxed about that. That's so valuable, and it's gone well. And uh, I've also had the joy of the fact that in the current retail market, it's quite fun to play the property boys. So they have, they have. Uh, Tim has used me to go and uh, go and shake up some of the property guys a little bit, sort of on leases that are three or four years out that we wouldn't normally talk to them about. So they've given me a little job to do as well. Yeah, thank you. That's that's been. Fantastic. Right. We yeah. could we could carry on, I think, for about another hour. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure I could bore maybe, maybe we'll do, longer. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll do a second episode at a later point. But, uh, that was fabulous. Thanks. Good. Thanks, Sam. 
you can download our podcast series from all the usual podcast places. Or do go and subscribe to the show. We'll be back with another interview next month. But for now, goodbye and thank you for listening.